Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. We are a podcast that spans the globe with guests who are leaders from allied forces and from industry. Today's guest is our first opportunity to speak with somebody serving with the Finnish Defense Forces. Seppo Altonen is a senior lieutenant in the Finnish Army Reserve, and he is also the chief commercial officer of Vario Technologies, a company which is a leader in virtual and mixed reality solutions and in cloud-enabled solutions. We begin our discussion by speaking about mandatory military service that all Finnish men are expected to perform. That requirement is rooted in the fact that Finland is an immediate neighbor of Russia, which attacked Finland in 1939 in what is known as the Winter War. That war began with a Soviet invasion three months after the outbreak of World War II, and ended three and a half months later with the Moscow Peace Treaty of March 1940. We discuss the obligations of mandatory service, how it is conducted, and why mandatory service is meaningful to Lieutenant Altonen, who proudly serves Finland, a country which ranks high among desirable places to live in the world. A theme you will consistently hear in our discussion is that freedom is not free, a statement which rings true for all who serve in uniform, and certainly for those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. Our discussion speaks about Finland's intent to join NATO, and the need to be prepared for potential scenarios the country may face in light of Russia's blatant aggression against sovereign nations, as is happening in Ukraine. We also speak about virtual and mixed reality solutions, which high-tech industry and the military are using for design, development, and training. Our chat is enlightening, as Lieutenant Altonen's perspective and the context he provides is one that often isn't heard, or it isn't heard enough, and that is why we at Gold Bold are so proud to present voices of allied warfighters to our global audience. I think you'll really enjoy this episode, so let's cue the music. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I'm really happy to have as a guest Seppo Altonen, who is a reserve officer with the Finnish Armed Forces. I'm looking forward to this discussion because Seppo is the first person from Finland that I have the privilege to have on this podcast. So um, Seppo Altonen, thank you so much for joining me today on Go Bold. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a true honor uh, to join this podcast today. Uh, the the honor is mine, sir. Um, so as I start with all of my guests, I ask what made you join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did. But in researching this episode and this conversation, I've come to learn that Finland has conscription. So I don't think you had a choice. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. Certainly, we will dive into that. So, uh, as you correctly pointed out, Finland has national service. Uh, so, the historical background is that we are a very small country, a small democracy, 5 million people, close to uh, a great power, Russia, with 145 million people, 
that has a unfortunately a history of uh, aggression and authoritarian leadership. And that means in a way that from Finnish point of view, the sentiment is that freedom is not free. We have to protect our democracy and our freedom by having conscription because a 5 million population, uh, we need basically to mobilize the whole society to be able to defend the nation uh, for need be. And right. uh, based just to give a view that we have a national uh, service and it's very well supported by the Finnish uh, sentiment. In recent polls, for example, you can see in a way that um, Finns has among the highest willingness to defend the country in the world. So in recent polls, over 83% of men and women say that they are ready to participate in military defense of the country should we be attacked. Uh, and that is the history, basically, of national service. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. And, you know, there's many countries around the world where people are patriotic. Um, what do you think is the reason for that level of willingness to serve in Finland versus other democratic countries? Yeah, I think one is obviously that we have a, a, a history of needing to defend the country. So in World War II, uh, Finland was basically attacked by uh, Russia uh, in the so-called Winter War. So basically, to preserve the freedom of the nation, there was basically very, very tough defensive battles. And during World War II, Finland, out of a population of 4 million people, lost 100,000 men. So every family in Finland, basically of the grandparent generation, have basically experienced the war and suffering. And for example, my family was a part of those areas where, you know, Finland was occupied by Russia in the Winter War. So basically we have a, a very much personal sense in a way, what it, as a family, what it makes to leave your your home and house and, and flee. And some of the civilians were dying in the process due to the hardship and cold winters and, and so forth. And at the same time, you had basically the the men in the family fighting to preserve the freedom. And that's our, my grandfathers. And we talked about that when I was young. And that tradition of defending the country and in understanding the importance was internalized by my father and now myself. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, our, our children will also basically value the importance of defending the democracy and nation we have as freedom is not free. After the war, by preserving the freedom and democracy, Finland has basically grown to a one of the richest countries in the world, a welfare society where you know you have free education, uh, free healthcare. So there is also a sense that we have something very valuable to protect as a society as the alternative can be, be very grim. Yeah, I know that Finland often ranks highest among the world of places to live. And if you were to see me, I'm using air quotes, but <laughs> happiness of the citizens, which I think is wonderful. And and I I can see how that sense of duty would be within the populace because of the society that you live in. No, you're absolutely correct. And, and it's interesting, this history, that uh, basically... After the Cold War, the many countries uh, you know, cashed in on the peace dividend and stopped conscription and uh, did not invest in defense. And Finland did actually the opposite. We kept basically the conscription and also investment in military defense all the way throughout the Cold War. And that obviously, if you look at the numbers out of a population of 5 million people, 
Finland has 900,000 trained reservists, so a little bit south of 20% of the population. Right. And a military war, wartime strength of 280,000 people. So for such a small country, we obviously uh, kept up a, a very high defensive capability. Right, right. Yeah, and much of the equipment that you have purchased is cutting-edge uh, frontline equipment. And, you know, I, I chat with a lot of pilots on this uh, on this podcast. Uh, obviously, it's not limited to pilots by any means, but... Um, but Finland has uh, has now selected the F-35 as their new fighter to replace the F-18 Hornet. Um, and that's a sign of how seriously Finland is taking the defense of, of their country. It, it's amazing what you guys have purchased and how you've kept abreast of technology. And uh, I suspect that that will also that also plays a factor in your professional career, because being a reserve officer, um, you have to serve. And I guess... It, that's probably my next question is, what is your obligation as a reserve officer? Uh, so basically in Finland, the national service is that all the men gets called up for conscription and basically 75 to 80% begin national service. And out of those, basically 70% complete the national service. And the national service is, uh, depending on role, at minimum six months and up to 12 months. And once you finish your national service, you are basically are in the reserve between the ages of basically 18 to 60. And you go for refresher training, uh, depending on on unit and role uh, in different level of frequency. And of course, should the conflict hit, then you you basically are called up uh, to defend the the nation. Right, right. Interesting. Okay. And so when you have to do the six-month service, um, six to 12 months of mandatory service, do you have the flexibility as to what part of the Finnish armed forces you can serve in? Yeah, so the, 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 you, you have the uh, opportunity to tell your interests. But of course, there will also be then that what's the need and fit. Uh, so obviously, depending on, on the supply and demand meet, you will get your, your, your branch. Right. And how the military service basically work is that typically everybody starts with basic training. So basically, essentially a few months of basic um, uh, military infantry uh, training. And after that, roughly a quarter is selected to NCO school, so essentially becoming uh, squad leaders. And that goes on for a few months. And out of those, basically a quarter are selected to reserve officer school, uh, becoming platoon uh, basic commanders. Uh, so that's how basically the overall uh, path goes. So uh, you basically get picked based on uh, the proficiency you show during uh, training. Interesting. Okay. And so uh, how did that go down for, for yourself? What uh, what was your interest and where did you end up? Yeah, so uh, I, I basically ended up, uh, I was interested to end up basically in the coastal uh, Jaeger. So that's basically what you would call similar to the U.S. Marines. And okay. actually today, as today, my old troop unit, we have now U.S. Marines training there, uh, given the current world situation. And in that, basically, domain, I was specialized on anti-tank warfare, as basically that's an important branch, giving, in a way, Finland's location and also the uh, potential aggressor that we assume will be heavy armored. So, so basically, we have a big emphasis on anti-tank capabilities. Very, very interesting because clearly we are seeing that that uh, that capability is so important, 
And I think many countries are recognizing that they really need to step up because what we're seeing in Ukraine is uh, is very much that scenario. Um, so I find it fascinating that you're an anti-tank specialist. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about anti-tank training and, and things like that, just because I, th- I think it would be interesting. Uh, but before we do that, tell me, you know, when you, when you start your service, your six-month service or, or 12 months as it may be, um, tell me where do you go and what was it like for you to leave home? You know you're going there. Um, so mentally, I guess you're prepared. But what is the actual experience of showing up and starting that process? And, and then I guess obviously continuing on with periodic training, as, as you mentioned. Yeah, certainly. So uh, obviously when you are 19 and full of life, it uh, is an interesting place. You meet basically the whole uh, year group of your society. So that's also interesting that you get to see uh, people from all over the nation, from different walks of life. And you go in to get kind of a fairly heavy physical training. So one thing is obviously that you 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 basically grow in physical strength, and obviously the training, um, particularly if you like me, get selected to the reserve officer training and, and NCO school at young age, you basically get to practice fairly advanced leadership. So leading first a squad and then a platoon, so taking responsibility for you know uh, first eight to nine people, but then up to 30 people. And in situations where you, you use heavy weaponry and in a dark forest, for example. So obviously a 19 year old, uh, it's, a, it's a steep learning curve, but it also teaches a lot in terms of um, yourself, but also working as a team for others and also to lead, which is obviously a, a good growth journey for a 19 year old, maybe leaving home for the first time for a longer period. Yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's awesome. And I I would love to pull at that string a little bit because one of the topics that I like to discuss in this podcast is leadership. Um, You are a reserve officer in the Finnish Armed Forces. So how have you grasped your role as an officer and being a leader? Um, What is your approach? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, the reserve officer training and, and experience have Given me a lot of kind of reflection of leadership, and there are few areas that basically the military aspect has shaped my leadership. So number one is obviously that during the military experience, you learn a lot about yourself. So obviously, uh, you learn to push through challenges. So perseverance, you 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 get the self confidence and also self discipline to operate when there is no sleep, lack of, uh, very little food. So you basically learn to overcome uh, basically challenges. So right. that's been one aspect I think that the military is basically giving in terms of leadership. The other area I think is particularly as a young person, learning to carry responsibility to fulfill the mission and at the same time, responsibility of the well-being of your team. That is also a very important leadership aspect that also carries into the, the civilian side. So this kind of duty that you have to take accountability to achieve the mission and, and also take good care of, of the team. And then the third aspect, I think it's, it is very interesting, is the, in the military, that basically uh, you meet people from all over the country with all types of different uh, backgrounds. In the many times in civilian life, you, you live in your own bubbles. So for example, if like me, in high-tech industry, you tend to meet people very similar, you know, high-tech educated people. And in, in the military, obviously, you get kind of to see the whole strata of society. And that gives you, a, 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 
for me at least, a better understanding of, of, of leadership and the dynamics in society, which I think has been very helpful for me. I think that's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful result of this duty to country that, that um, you know, it forces you in a way to kind of get to know your fellow countrymen across all social strata, as you mentioned, where you otherwise might not have met them. So I, I think there's value in that. There is definitely value and cohesion. I think that comes back to this kind of high uh, willingness to defend the country and also the high confidence in the society to defend the country. And we have also a concept in Finland, basically like total defense. So basically, when we think about defending the nation, it's not only about military defense. It's a big part, of course, but also civil defense. So in Finland, for example, we have bomb shelters that can house over 4 million out of a population of, of, of 5 million. And we also have authorities working together. So in, in military exercises, we have police, military uh, hospitals, different authorities working together because we have to ensure the functioning of society under crisis. And it's not just kind of the military aspect, but take care of, of the society. And I think that is also very, in a way, special in the, in the Finnish concept of, of, of national defense. And we also have things like resilience of the infrastructure, so protecting the power grids, ensuring that you know the, the internet connectivity works so industry can go on. And you know, we have cold winters, we need to ensure that you know we have heating going on, and also uh, secure to supply. So we basically have big storage of fuel, uh, food, and medicines. Uh, as a nation, uh, if crisis happens and we cannot ensure those transportations happen. So basically, we think holistically uh, about defense in, in, in Finland. To me, uh, Seppo, that is so refreshing to hear. <laughs> I, I don't know if many countries do it to the extent that you do. And part of it, I suspect, obviously, is your neighbor uh, to the east. So you have to be prepared. Um, but I've heard of more and more exercises now. You mentioned the U.S. Marines are training with the unit that, that you uh, are part of. Um, but I think that that is happening more and more now where Western forces are training with Finland more frequently. And I suspect that Finland, by virtue of what you have just explained, are experts in northern or Arctic type warfare, let alone all the other types of warfare. Yeah, correct. So, so it is. Uh, we be very good to see increased training with U.S. troops, uh, British troops, and the Scandinavian armed forces. And obviously, that we we are looking forward to soon join NATO, as we think that basically joining NATO will bring further amount of peace and stability by ensuring strong deterrence and and bringing together the capabilities of the Western uh, nations to. Uh, protect peace in our part of, of the world. And obviously, from Finnish point of view, our armed forces and tactics are, of course, shaped by the nature and circumstance that we have here. So obviously, we have long, cold winters. We have, like in Canada, a lot of forest area, a lot of, of wilderness. That's basically the where where the whole equipment, the whole way we, we, we are trained, the tactics, everything is yielded to that. And I think that's where, obviously, Probably we can have something to give to our international partners. At the same time, we, of course, learn a lot from the international partners bringing in uh, their techniques and tactics uh, so we can learn from each other yeah. and be stronger together. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a beautiful statement. And clearly, Finland's desire to join NATO is a, is a positive step for the alliance writ large. And, uh, and I suspect it will probably be a very easy, uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's a big structure to, I guess, to merge with, but um, most of the equipment that you have is Western equipment anyway. So, or I guess all of it is Western equipment. So, uh, so I suspect it won't be that difficult to integrate because you're already operating together. This will just formalize uh, things from a NATO perspective. Yeah, that's it. it's it's correct that Finland has been very a close partner of NATO for for over twenty years, and as you say, basically we have a lot of Western equipment. So currently we operate the F eighteen Hornets, but uh, as you mentioned, we made the decision to acquire the F thirty five. We have the basically a, a very big artillery. Actually, Finland has basically one of the biggest artilleries in whole Western Europe, and we have, for example, the multiple. Uh, rocket launch systems, the HIMARS, that basically been uh, proven very effective and important to Ukraine. Right. Uh, and, and overall, overall, the interoperability from military point of view is a very high level with with NATO, and also been a lot of joint operations between basically NATO and Finland based peacekeeping operations, and also the the, the war in Afghanistan. So obviously, there is a lot of compatibility ready to build on. Right. Right. Oh, amazing to hear. Um, so you got to now tell me about training to be an anti-tank officer, because I'd love to hear a little bit about how that happens. I find training fascinating because, as I've said in a recent episode, um, unless you're in combat, everything you do in the military is training. So <laughs> training is so important. So I would love to hear how that training takes place and what kind of weapons do you use in that role? Because, um, like I said earlier, it is topical, so I'm I'm kind of interested. Yeah, obviously, uh, the, the, the training is uh, very much basically geared towards uh, using the train. So basically, we have very foresty area that is hard typically for mechanized units to attackers to, to exploit. So basically, there's opportunity to use the train to our favors. So there's a combination of using mines to stop basically the movement of a mechanized enemy. And then basically, once they are pinned down, concentration of artillery and then different type of anti-tank weapons, basically yielding from uh, different grenade launchers to anti-tank missiles. And the idea is obviously to, to concentrate the, the firepower and knock out the heavy heavy formations. And obviously, uh, it's important then to coordinate, uh, to separate basically the infantry that might protect the, the enemy tanks from the, the, the tanks so that you basically then can repel both in an effective way. And that's basically the core fundamentals of the training that is in- intensively trained uh, both in, in basic training, as we discussed, and then in the refresher trainings when people are in reserve, when they are called up for reserve trainings. Right. Interesting. And so uh, how often do you uh, have that refresher training? So that very much depends on the on the role and, and age so and situation of the, the kind of world. So right now, when it's been... Uh, fairly tense situation in Europe. If I look at my own schedule, uh, basically, if I look at the last month, uh, I've combined basically three weekends of training out of four, uh, combined of, of voluntary training and called up training. And basically, this is obviously very, very intense. Uh, normally, it's basically refresher training between troops every few years for operational troops. And then when people basically, troops are getting older then it becomes less but that's very much role dependent 
Right, right. Interesting. And so it's a perfect segue to talk about your professional career because um, you are an executive in a high-tech company, Vario. Um, but how does your obligation for service and training marry with your professional career? Because um, as you mentioned, three weekends out of four, you've had to do training. So that means the better part of the, the whole month, you have been working either as a reserve officer or in your professional capacity. Um, perhaps these times are unique, but it's got to be taxing on you because there's very little downtime. Yeah, I mean, obviously these times are unique and not not uh, normal times. And obviously what's happened now overall in Finland due to the high willingness to defend, people are doing a lot of voluntary military training. So the voluntary military training, people are signing up for extra reserve training. So this is not definitely the normal uh, circumstance. But overall, I mean, um, in, in normal times, we are expected to be citizen soldiers, right? So we, we have our day jobs to contribute to society and, and live in peace and prosperity. But at the same time, if you are called up for military service, your employer is obliged to give you a leave of absence for those trainings. And uh, it's uh, something that it's basically a little bit uh, even felt like a duty of honor. So if the military calls you up, most people think that it's basically, you know, it's uh, your, your national duty to, to, to do it. And you go well into these exercises, even though it uh, can be tiresome for sure. But at the oh. same time, feeling of satisfaction once you have completed it. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, that's such a beautiful way to look at it. Another area that has been basically now, I think, a sentiment and thought when I look at the world has been also that why national defense and serving is important is that it's very clear when we see the, the horrendous what's happening in, in Ukraine. So the Russian at atrocities in Butsha and, and Irpin, that the alternative of not defending can be very, very grim. So I think in a way that all the nations that are in the same geographical location of Finland, that you have a basically 800-mile border with, with, with Russia, you have to take care of your, your, your security. And obviously, we feel that being a small nation, everybody, the total society needs to contribute to that. And we also think that it's good to be part of the alliance join NATO of people who share the same values of defending democracy and, and, and freedom and work together and because together we are stronger and can preserve uh, peace. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, everybody. I'd like to thank our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions, for their support of this podcast. Part of what we do at Go Bold is engage with senior leaders and try to have conversations that address topics like leadership, emerging technologies, and new capabilities. In this episode, you're hearing about the importance of training and communications, both of which are areas where Cubic is recognized as a global leader. I encourage you to learn more about them at cubic.com. I also want to thank Cubic for their support and for their faith in us to help preserve the voices of military leaders like our guest today. And now, let's get back to our chat. Um, one thing I didn't ask you, which perhaps maybe some listeners would be wondering, is you mentioned that men have the obligation to serve. How about women? That's a good one. So uh, what we have seen right now is that 
women can volunteer to do military service and the number of women who do military service have been growing. So we are at record levels. And uh, right now there is a discussion actually in Finland also should basically uh, women also be called in to the pre-conscription. So basically in the beginning when people are called up, uh, the men in, in the society you get called up when you are 17 to discuss basically your military service. And that's been only so far all the men are called up when they are 17. But now there is a discussion that should also all the women be called up for discussion that, you know, are they interested to serve and, and, and so forth and make it more broader in society. And uh, I think that's kind of very much a sentiment that most likely conscription and national service will, will grow mandatory for both genders. That's a scenario definitely being discussed in Finland right now. You know, I think that's um, that's a good discussion to have. And I suspect if it happens where both men and women will have this obligation, um, I actually think it's not a bad thing at all. I, I think that there is value in this model that Finland has, because as you say, at 18, you start, it, you know, it gives you some discipline, gives you some focus. Uh, and, you know, whether people carry that on throughout their lives or not is perhaps irrelevant, but at least in a young age, at a formative age, it does give some structure, and then people can choose to to lead their lives how they choose afterwards. But uh, but De- I, definitely, you're absolutely right. And also, I think what you see is that when you have had this type of basic uh, training, you the overall resiliency and being able to act under crisis grows, even though you might not pursue a full military career. But having some of basic training enables that. And also, I think you know, in terms of the talent pool. So obviously, I've had the honor to serve with many strong female soldiers in Finland, and, and many of them are very, very capable. And basically, it's in the nation's interest to get the best talent. And I think that's also very interesting on the Finnish model is that, that when you have a, one of the highest educated societies in the world and everybody has also reservists, you can pin on a lot of talent. So when I look at kind of my uh, refresher trainings, you have basically... People who in the civilian life, uh, look at my last refresher training, are, you know, designing drones in their civilian lives or advanced telecommunication systems. But at the same time, you have construction workers, you have nurses. So when you think about the skill of a unit who has this type of tremendous educational potential, you can address very complex problems. So if you need to build basically protective shelters, you can engage uh, the persons who have a civilian career in construction industry if you need to operate the drone, you engage the, the, the researcher uh, who's specializing in drones. And if you have a medical uh, uh, casualties, you can have a person that in, in the civilian life is, is a nurse, but they kind of reservist uh, as a citizen soldier. So I think that basically education level is also serving uh, the defense uh, of the nation and the total defense. Yeah, uh, I I think there there's so much value there, and um, I think that's a wonderful wonderful way to put it. Um, it also speaks to me about tax structure, and in Finland, my understanding is that you are taxed quite heavily, but that takes a burden off you in terms of education. Education is paid for, healthcare is paid for, all of these things that I believe, and you know. So, People will say, oh, maybe it's a socialist perspective or what have you. But um, I believe those are things that 
every nation should afford its citizens. But these things cost money. So therefore, that's what taxes pay for, not just roads, but in your case, healthcare, education, you don't have to worry about any of it. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, obviously it is uh, uh, a, a system that we think it's very good for society that you don't leave anybody behind. Right. That for, as a small nation, basically having a well-educated uh, workforce enables us to build, be, be competitive <laughs> in the international market by, by having a high level of, of know-how. And, and that obviously is a foundation for our economic prosperity. And I think also... When you have that uh, feeling that you are taken care of in healthcare and also education, I think that you have that kind of trust that this is society also worth defending, that everybody feels a stake, that is actually a very good place to live. Right. So you have that basically both that it is uh, basically creating a good cohesion in, in, the, in the society. I think that is so true. And, uh, you know, to me, thinking just practically, if you have a larger country, that burden is spread across each person less than having smaller numbers. So uh, a country that has hundreds of millions, you would collectively perhaps have to pay less to get to that same level. Capitalistic society that mm -hmm. basically competes in, in uh, free trade and high-tech industry and being right. basically very export-driven. Right. But at the same time, I think we also have the welfare society that we don't leave people behind. You get mm -hmm. the education, you get the, the health care. And, and my thinking is that obviously when you get so much, you also basically are obliged to give back and serve the community. And that's one motivation for my national service is obviously that I know that my grandparents uh, made this type of life possible for me by paying a very heavy sacrifice. And obviously... I want to ensure that my kids and grandkids can also live in a free, prosperous country. And, and obviously, if things happen, we have to be able to, to step up and protect that as freedom. It's not free. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I completely agree, Seppo. I completely agree. So tell me a little bit about your professional career. How did you find yourself in the high-tech industry? Yeah, certainly. So uh, I'm an engineer by training, and uh, I started off my career in Nokia. So basically, I had the opportunity to see and be part of creating the revolution of cellular technology and the mobile internet. Right. And I think I'm very passionate about technology overall. And right now, basically, I'm working at Vario Technologies. So basically, a very rapidly growing high-tech company focusing on the professional virtual and mixed reality headsets and cloud solutions. And obviously, this is a very, very exciting technology field that is moving very quickly. And I really feel that you can bring new technology that delivers immense benefits to different industries. So Vario is basically used in the car industry to speed up the design of cars. So instead of building physical prototypes, you can do virtual prototypes. And during COVID times, for example, when people could not go into the office, they could actually stay home and design virtual car models and actually connect people from different parts of the world to design models. So basically really driving a revolution in, in the way we work. And on the military side, from Vario, we are providing a very high quality mixed and virtual reality. We are in fact the only headset in the world that you can replace 
flight hours in civilian flight training. So get EASA qualified hours by flying using virtual reality and not uh, helicopters. So obviously a lot of savings right there. And right now we are also privileged to work with very demanding advanced customers such as the US Navy and US Air Force, Finnish Air Force to uh, provide mixed reality training technology uh, for pilot training. And some of the benefits that that yields is that compared to traditional big dome simulators, in virtual and mixed reality, you get a much more smaller footprint. These training systems are movable compared to the traditional domes that were massive, you could not move. Right. And also the cost structure, you can do the same training for a fraction of the cost, meaning that you can achieve so many more sets and reps in training, so much more training impact for the same investment uh, or much less investment than traditional dome uh, simulators. So, so this is a very interesting area to be in for now. Yeah, oh, it absolutely is for sure. And I think most listeners will be able to conceptualize what virtual reality is, because especially a younger generation, a lot of people play video games and virtual reality is quite prevalent. Um, but how would you describe the difference of virtual reality and mixed reality for those that, that aren't familiar with the technology? Well, that's perfect. So virtual reality is that you're totally in a synthetic world. So when you put your virtual reality headset on, you only see a, a virtual world. There is nothing real in it. So everything is basically a digital model. Okay. Mixed reality is that you combine a digital feed, essentially using a video camera of the real world with basically elements of the virtual world. So how that manifests, for example, in pilot training is that you use basically the cockpit, you, you use your real hands, you operate all the real equipment through a digital video camera. But when you look out the cockpit window, you look at basically a virtual reality world. So basically, essentially, mixed reality is the combination of the real world and the virtual world, whereas virtual reality is pure virtual. <laughs> right, right. Okay, interesting. And so uh, where do you see the emphasis going? I think I know, but um, from a company perspective, between virtual reality and mixed reality, where do you see the emphasis today? Yeah, I mean, we, we see today that the market, as you pointed out earlier on, that uh, virtual reality has been more prevalent. So it's been around in the gaming industry for, for a few years. And right now it's entering the professional industry. So not being a game anymore, but really used for professional uses, such as maintenance training, pilot training, different equipment training. Right. But mixed reality is really, I would say, the, the kind of hottest area of the industry right now, where you... It, are just taking off in a big way. So basically the combination of using real equipment through the video camera and operating then uh, looking out of the windows or, or looking at virtual objects, that's kind of taking off. So what we see right now is that the mixed reality deployments in different enterprises is just growing. So from Vario point of view, we are, for example, right now out of the Fortune 100 companies, 25% is using uh, our Vario customers today. And out of the automotive companies, the top 20 biggest companies, 15 of those are already Vario customers. Wow. Uh, and, and we see basically that uh, the, the use cases and the basically the way these get deployed are just growing immensely. And then in the next phase, we are seeing that things are going more and more from local computers to the cloud. People talk about the metaverse. So basically connected solutions of virtual and mixed reality uh, where you mix the world, but also connect them together. 
that's really the next phase of growth that is also happening at the, at the same time. So to net it out, a lot of growth in all segments, mixed reality particular, and then cloud enabling that. So definitely a very exciting place to be right now. Yeah, no, it, it definitely seems so. Um, you know, you hear about the cloud more and more and more. And, um, you know, I sometimes wonder about that in terms of security. Some people say it's more secure than having something uh, local, but um, I, I don't know. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. But to dig down a little bit deeper into mixed reality, I'm kind of wondering about how you're saying, you know, you're, you take a camera and you're visualizing the world in front of you. You can see your hands and all of this stuff. Um, is it easier to do it that way as opposed to having a mixed reality, I guess, headset where you can just see the world basically uh, as though you're, you know, your eyes are just looking through a, a screen, you see the world and then have content superimposed onto that. Yeah, that's the augmented reality that you are bringing up. Exactly that's, right. That's one one way of doing it. So that is uh, interesting. Okay, so maybe that's the difference then you could mention because the difference between mixed reality and augmented reality, um, do you see one growing faster than the other or where do you see things going in, in with regards to those two? Yeah, so right now they are a little bit in different use cases. So as you correctly pointed out, augmented reality is that you look through op uh, normal optics and then you project basically a virtual uh, uh, image on it. Right. And that's basically enabling today, for example, in you know maintenance use cases uh, where you walk around, uh, you don't need to have a, a very big headset or not a lot of compute. But then mixed reality is basically where you have very high quality of digitalized video feed combined with a high quality virtual reality. Okay. Uh, that's what we're doing in Vario. And that's basically used in areas where you need absolute highest quality, being it in car design or uh, pilot training, where you have to have very, very high visual fidelity and very high quality. And you also need to avoid simulator sickness or negative training. That's where, where basically these high-end mixed reality products that Vario are bringing to market uh, successfully, we received a kind of tremendous growth right now. That's where the focus is. Nice, nice. And so you mentioned some programs that you're with the US Army um, and the US Navy. Could you give me some some examples of what exactly they're doing with the Vario technology that they've adopted? So if you look at basically different implementations, so, so for example, uh, helicopter pilot training is, mm -hmm. a, is a big area right now. So basically, you can fly the helicopter, operate all the controls through the video camera, but then some of the, the, the displays are uh, operated through virtual reality or when you look out the window. And then obviously what you can do is also then connect these simulators together and do bigger and bigger training scenarios. So that's big. The same is happening on, on fixed wing training. Uh, so basically helicopters, fixed wing training. We touched upon maintenance training. So when you have advanced technical equipment, it's very convenient to, to train with VR or, or mixed reality. Mm -hmm. And we see also different type of uh, uh, use cases like JTAC training. So if you basically need to control fire, it's very expensive to do in real life. So good to practice in mixed reality. Uh, and the use cases just go on and on. And the imagination is just, just the limit right now. Yeah, it, and it, it strikes me that this technology could be very beneficial. Uh, you know, you, you know the acronym as well as I do, uh, LVC, Live Virtual Constructive. So I suspect um, mixed reality would enable 
aspects of live virtual and constructive training. Absolutely. Uh, in, in fact, uh, we have done very interesting work, for example, with the Finnish Air Force and Patria uh, related to this area, where basically we have had Vario mixed reality devices used in creating uh, flight simulators that have been connected to existing simulators. And then those been looped into real airplanes in the air. And they've been able then to run very advanced live virtual and con uh, constructive trainings. And this is one of the areas definitely that, that is growing. That's very, very interesting. So you mentioned the cloud. Where do you see the next leap in technology occurring when it comes to the type of technology that Vario is focused on? Yeah, there's so much happening in, in the cloud right now. So what we have, for example, been doing now lately, we have been launching the Vario Reality Cloud, essentially enabling uh, car designers to use one of the most popular car design software called Autodesk streamed from the cloud. And that has been able car designers to have less expensive local computers, less need to have uh, pre-installed licenses, but you can basically stream those from the cloud as you need it and enable then massive collaboration. And we think that this type of cloud services will just proliferate. We become more and more of those. So different use cases uh, taken through cloud enable basically rapid scalability and access anywhere uh, basically to, to the services and enabling advanced collaboration uh, through multiple parties. So a lot is happening in that area. That sounds fascinating. And I guess, you know, you, you gave the example of the automotive industry, but clearly this could this could be for for any aspect of industry, whether it be defense, automotive, uh, I suspect even aviation, um, you know, commercial aviation and what have you. Definitely. And, and you can think about this in, in a military context. So if you want to train, for example, a joint warfare against a symmetric near-peer adversary, Obviously, to be able to train that effectively, it is very beneficial to have multiple uh, training nodes and you can have mixed reality, uh, different simulators that are then connected and then again connected to, L to LVC systems with actually real units on the ground. And obviously, this is enabling that type of, of training scenarios in the future. Beautiful. So now what is next for... Seppo Altanen, what is your focus, both from a corporate perspective and also as a reserve officer in the Finnish Armed Forces? Yeah, we, we from Vario point of view, obviously, uh, the technology and industry is growing, and, and we are looking forward to work with uh, advanced customers in our different industries. We see a lot of very good projects in the defense and aerospace industry. And for example, we look forward to soon attending the IITSEC trade show in Orlando, where we look forward to engaging with the training and simulation community uh, from the different arm, arm branches on the latest innovation and see what we can do together or enabling mixed reality. And as a reserve officer, uh, obviously, I hope for uh, peace. I think it's very important that we in the West come together and support Ukraine. Ukraine needs to win and the Putin needs to be stopped. That's important to preserve peace in all, all, all in the world. And uh, only by working together and standing firm in the West in sanctions and uh, supporting Ukraine, uh, we will make that happen. And that is very important. So all support to Ukraine possible to get lasting peace. 
I echoed those sentiments 100%. Um, yes, it, it, there's no reason for any of this to be happening. The loss of life on both sides, it's it's tragic and, and senseless. So I echo your sentiments, um, Seppo. And I thank you so much for joining me today on Go Bold. What a wonderful chat. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I, I really appreciate your time. And um, I am very happy that you are my first Finnish guest. And I hope not the last, but I also hope that we'll be able to speak again and, uh, and catch up and, and kind of hear where technology is moving in the future. Thank you so much for having me today. It was great to talk. And uh, I look forward to meeting you soon again. And I definitely hope I'm not the last <laughs> that will join this podcast from, from, from the Finnish side. It was a true pleasure and a true honor. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. That, my friends, was Seppo Altonen, a reserve officer with the Finnish Armed Forces and the chief commercial officer at Vario Technologies. Uh, if you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please feel free to write us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you have a wonderful day, everybody. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>